the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. Let me just pray for us. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this word, and I thank you about what we're about to learn, this this young Mary, what she's about to learn as she comes to expect you to arrive. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So as a young woman about to be married, I expect that Mary and Joseph would have had similar and lofty expectations of their wedding and marriage like I did 26 years ago. But while they were looking forward to all of that, the, the angel had a surprise bonus for them, something they could not have expected for their union. And so when we hear of angelic visitors, we, we've got to scrub out of our minds sort of chubby-cheeked cherubs. No, when, when angels show up in the Bible, they're, they're warriors, they're shining, sometimes with swords, and so they often have to say, hey, don't be afraid. So we hear that from the angel. And so in verse 29, it's very natural where it says Mary was feeling greatly troubled as she received this visitor being called highly favored from God. So Mary is so young. She's likely 12 to 14. The traditional culture, marriage started a bit young. She was a peasant girl from a village, an obscure little village called Nazareth in what was then the, the province of Roman Palestine. She lived far from any city, from the capital city of Jerusalem. So she would have had a very simple life of chores and daily routines. So having a greeting of such honor would have felt way beyond her pay grade. She's, this is not, this is not for me. And then added to that, this angel saying, you will conceive a son and you will call him Jesus. Then in verse 32, It goes on to say this. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. So at this point, I imagine poor young Mary having her categories just exploded. Because the child that Gabriel is talking about sounds a lot like Jewish Messiah that her people were expecting, as predicted in this passage in Isaiah, where it says, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. That's a a lot to take in. And in this dialogue between Mary and Gabriel, there's there's these unbelievable facts that the baby is going to be born by being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Talk about adjusting one's expectations to marriage. You know, if, if Gabriel's giving the world's first premarital counseling, he's sort of uh, throwing quite a curveball. Because what Mary's being invited to is, is a huge leap of faith. This sort of expecting Christ's coming, this Messiah, but through her own womb. Her life-changing encounter with the angel Gabriel that day ends with these very famous words that Mary says in verse 38. He sa- she says, 
I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left her. Wow. So as we begin Advent today, Mary shows us how to make room for Christ. She demonstrates that to prepare room for Christ and expect his coming is going to mean surrender. Surrender to his coming in ways that we don't expect, in ways that probably break our categories and our expectations. So the title we've chosen for the whole series, Prepare Him Room, comes from the the famous Christmas song, Joy to the World. I won't sing it for you, but we'll sing it in coming weeks. And in that that song, it says, um, what does it say? It says, let us prepare, let every heart prepare him room. And I wonder if the essence of what the, the songwriter was getting at is that Jesus doesn't ever force his way into human hearts. He wants us to prepare him room. He wants to come into an invited heart. And so that's the sense that we get. And so at Advent, we remember that God first came as a baby. You know, babies don't come forcefully onto the scene. Well, they do and don't in some ways. I just got to visit Ryan and Tracy yesterday and hold little baby Isaac. And and little babies invite us to come close and and to interpret what they need through, through their cries and coos. He's very cute. So that's how Jesus came. That should tell us something about who God is, to come like that as a baby. But we also remember Advent points to the fact that Jesus is with us now through the Holy Spirit. He's a God who hasn't left. He's with us. And he's the kind of God that ordinary people like us can meet in everyday ways. And that's why we, we gather here on every Sunday to sort of get another boost what it means to meet with Jesus. And finally, Advent nods to ahead to the, to the promise of Easter, the promise that, that this, this baby Jesus, this man Jesus, will come back as reigning King Jesus. So he came to the world 2,000 years ago. He's with us today, and he's the coming king of the future. So I want to get practical and ask, if, if he's here today, then why do we celebrate Advent? Why, why do we talk about needing to make room? Well, if you're like me, uh, we often talk about how we and people in the church, we leak. We leak the good things. We leak vision. We, we leak uh, the capacity. Uh, so... That's why we, we focus on remembering. We need to, to be, have that stuff that's leaked out to be refilled. But if we leak, the opposite is also true. We often get bloated and overfull of things in this life. And so that the way we overfill our lives can leave very little room for the very important things like welcoming Jesus. So that's what Advent helps us with. So if you take a, a look back to Mary for a moment... The angel Gabriel is inviting her to expect Christ's coming. So again, what a a wake-up call that would have been. You see, because Mary and her Jewish people waiting for the Jewish Messiah was sort of old news. I mean, they read about it in the Old Testament. The, The final prophet, Malachi, before this time, it was 400 years. So imagine in our lives... It would have been in the 1600s was, was the last time we, we heard good news about this God. Like, who remembers the 1600s? 400 years had passed. So there are people, they gather every week, waiting for the Messiah, waiting and waiting, but, but nothing, silence. And, and yet, meanwhile, Mary and her family lived in, like I said, Roman Palestine. 
this, this place under occupation where, where soldiers would have freely roamed the streets with pointy swords and telling people what to do. I don't know if you've ever visited parts of the world like this. When, when we lived in Zambia for three years, I remember these scenes. We'd cross the little border crossings into the small countries around, and you'd see the soldiers with their guns, and it felt tense. I remember it when I, a couple times when I visited the Holy Land. We'd cross from Israel into the West Bank, and the many checkpoints, it's very, very tense, uh, much uh, less than it is now, but that you feel the tension even at the best of times. So Mary and her community, though they're waiting, they're waiting in tension. So what impresses me is, is the way they, they would have waited and, so, and yet would have had nagging questions. So their questions might have something been like, where is our Messiah? Where is our hope? When, when will God fill these promises and restore our identity? So I wonder, as we gather in Advent, as, as you've come to, to this church today, you might be gathering with a sense of nagging questions. Excuse me. A little cough taking a while to go away. So when we think of waiting, when we think of the nagging questions, it's one thing to, to wait for a red light or to wait in a doctor's office, but it's another thing to feel like maybe in life you're sort of in this waiting room, maybe waiting for a spouse or a partner. Or waiting to have kids, if you dream to have kids. Or once you have kids, waiting for them to launch and wondering, have we, have we done what we need to do? Maybe you're waiting for a loved one to, to find their own faith in God. Maybe in your career, you need a breakthrough. Maybe in your mind, in your body, those places that are hard for others to see, you need, you need a touch of God. So you might be here today feeling like you're literally waiting for a miracle. And so inward, if we're honest, we can say, you know, come on, Jesus, I hear about you coming, but I need to see, I need to feel more of your coming. This tension really sunk into me uh, in the last 10 days or so. So a good friend of mine from my, my previous church, his name's Ernie, he, he called me up and he, he told me the tragic news that they lost their 21-year-old daughter in a tragic way. So... Um, Emily was a university student, someone with lots of life, lots of life ahead. She was at UBC. And then they asked me, called back, and asked me if I would conduct her funeral. So that's coming up on Thursday. So I find that their unspoken question is now becoming my question as I prepare and talk to you and then anticipate talking to them. Where can they find hope? So in this call to expect Christ's coming, how in, in Ernie and his family's case, how can Christ restore their hope? How can he meet their need in such a sad loss? And situations like death, death of a daughter, especially a family member, just really, if we're honest, pushes the boundaries of Christian hope, doesn't it? So we need that hope today. And so this, we want to get practical. What does preparing room for Christ look like? Because as I prepare words to speak to them on Thursday, I'm just really hoping to say things that will, you know, by some miracle, Christ will, will come in and, and restore their hope on the many sad days they face. And I know many of you have faced things like this much more than I have, so you know the tension that takes as well. Holding on to expecting Christ, as we see in Mary's story, it's going to involve 
a call from God that often takes great faith, actually a lot of guts to hold on to. I want to read a quote I read this week. It's from an author called Louis Smedes, and he apparently has written a lot uh, to people about grief and sadness in life. So Lewis writes this, Waiting is our destiny. As creatures who cannot by themselves bring about what they hope for, we wait in the darkness for a flame we cannot light. We wait in fear for a happy ending that we cannot write. So I think Mary and her people were likely doing that kind of waiting. She had, like I said, probably forgot they were even waiting for a Messiah. All they see is soldiers and oppression and occupation. She would have gotten on with life in front of her with with her chores and, and now the happy news of getting married. And yet, as God does, God had more for Mary. He was coming to light a flame that she could not light and to write a happy ending she could not write. And that's how God wants to come to us. So again, I ask you, what are you, if you're honest, what are you waiting for as we come into this season of Advent? Maybe you haven't brought that to mind consciously, but even as you're here and as you go from here, we want you to bring to mind that, that yearning. What are you waiting for? Because if you're like us, maybe, maybe globally, you're waiting for end of war. We want to see a, a permanent ceasefire in Gaza and Israel. We want to see that in, in Ukraine and all the rest of the places touched by war. Locally, uh, we and our families and many around us are touched by, by, by the economic strains of this downturn. So maybe that's touching you and your family. And maybe personally, again, this maybe things that no one else can see, but you know. You need to know there's hope, but I want to I share with you, hope is coming. Hope is on its way. You're not alone in facing all that tension. And yet we have to acknowledge the struggle. We can't just sort of look forward to some future hope. We have to acknowledge that Jesus is with us now. C.S. Lewis says it this way, and you might relate to this quote. He says his life was, was described by this quote. He calls it the inconsolable longing in the heart, for we know not what. So if you've ever woken up like that, just like, I don't know, I, I just can't put my finger on it, but my, my heart longs, then you're, you're in good company in the human family. So we want to, again, ask, how does the Christ who came and is with us now and will come, how, how does he meet that hope? So I want, to, I want to give you a bit of an early Christmas present here, uh, a little bit of a, a nudge towards something which I'm calling dual memory the dual memory of Christians. So there's, there's something I want to show you, and then I'm going to talk about it. So a little gift for you here, this little image. I found this as I was getting ready and as I was thinking the, of the dual image and maybe a nod to the fact that I've worked with kids and teens a lot. So this made me smile, and I hope it makes you smile. So this cute little chihuahua, I want him to remind you that as Christians with a dual hope, one eye, we look back. We're doing that today. We, we look back, right, to Christ and his coming and what he did on the cross. We look back and we, we hold on to he didn't leave us alone. He came. And then with the other eye, we look forward. We look forward to the words of the Christ says, I'm coming again. I am the coming king whose throne will never end. So we look back. We look forward 
And as we walk through life facing right down the middle, looking backwards and forwards, that's how we do it. That's the, the, the dual memory that Christians are invited to live with. Something more serious now, in a good way. N.T. Wright says it like this. When today we long for God to act, to put the world to rights, we must remind ourselves that he's already done so and that we are now waiting its full outworking of those events. We wait with patience, not like people in a dark room wondering if anyone will ever come with a lighted candle, but like people in early morning who know that the sun has arisen and are now waiting for the full brightness of midday. found myself in a situation a bit like that this morning. Didn't sleep that well, but I thought, I'm going to go for a run. So it was in the dark, and I thought of this quote. Like, oh, yeah, the sun has risen somewhere. Uh, midday is coming. Psalm 130 says it this way. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. So Christian people, people of God, were, were invited to be people whose whole being waits and wants God to answer. And this kind of waiting, this kind of dual memory will, will make us live differently than other people. And we may even get criticized for it. We may, in, in a metaphorical sense, look a little bit like that chihuahua as we keep talking about what was back and what's forward and we're facing down life with hope. Because you see, we're not alone. The Bible story has been about this since its beginning. We see Abraham and Sarah promised a child. They wait 25 years. We see then Joseph later thrown into an Egyptian prison and and waiting 12 years. Then his people, Israel, stay in Egypt for 400 years. Then they escape, wait 40 years. So waiting. And now today in the passage we see Mary, a young woman, in a sense now waiting. Pregnancy is of waiting, nine months of waiting. So God seems content with our waiting because we're not alone in it. He's forming us in our waiting. So if God's moving slowly, just know that God does that, and yet he wants to hold out hope that his answers are coming. Another scholar says it like this, Christians are not merely people who are hopeful. They are people who are expecting Christ to come and waiting for Christ to come. That's how we wait. So during this this Advent waiting, I think there's at least one practice that we can do together that helps us with this this dual memory, and it's prayer. Old-fashioned, simple prayer. So in prayer, God calls us, uh, the Bible calls us to pray in all circumstances, to, to pray with what we're joyful of, to pray with what we're sad and, and longing about, and to expect that as we pray, this, this kind of peace will literally come and, and fill our imagination, will we'll transform the way we even look at the very situations we're facing. So that's what we, we desire to do together. And we need help to do that. So even today, after this service, we'll have Abner offering prayer at the banner. So if you feel God nudging you to say, why don't you try prayer? Why don't you see if I might fill you with hope, even if that situation doesn't change right away? Another way to do it, as, as Lindsay said, is there's a card. You could fill that out, and we will pray for you. We'll, we'll contact you if you'd like. We'll let you know that God is on your side. 
So as we pray through these situations, as we encounter these situations, we're not alone. We do this together. We trust and we wait. And we take on that posture as young Mary did, as she said in her words, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be fulfilled to me. Let, it, let me pray as we, as we close this part. Lord, I thank you for this chance to reflect on your word through the example of young Mary, young teenage Mary, invited to trust you, invited to expect your coming, and to let that news and that coming encounter her. So we, I pray, I desire your coming, your very presence, Holy Spirit, to fill the longings, to answer the questions of our friends gathered here today. Lord, would you meet us as we continue to worship, as we take communion? Would you meet us with your very presence? I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.